Well, it is so good to see you all here. As I said, it's just nice to come in and and uh, see your smiling faces. And um, did, who who opened the door? Was that Dale? Did, okay, he didn't want to come. In. He didn't want to bother. I guess, he doesn't bother anybody. Okay. Oh, we had a bright shirt on. Okay. <laughs> is that what it was? Okay. All right. I just. He and, the door and he said, look how good I look today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here, you know, like, hey. <laughs> See, I thought he was being considerate. I thought he saw we were talking and just didn't want to, you know, but no, it was being Dale. All right. Fair enough. I take it back. All right. So... <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, we're at chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Uh, we had some wonderful discussion last week about Paul in Ephesus and some of the, <coughs> the things that he encountered. <coughs> oh, excuse me. But we are now getting down into this account of the sons of the sons of Sceva. And I want to talk about what takes place here and then we're going to get into a riot that occurred at Ephesus. You know, it's one of these things that when you when you take a look at all of Paul's ministries, you can tell that Paul is being successful and obedient if for no other reason than to see how much opposition he keeps facing. Because when the Lord says that you will be persecuted because you follow me, when you see Paul being persecuted and continuing to receive all of this backlash and all of this problem, you know that he's following the Lord and he's doing what he was called to do. And you can also see because of what Luke has recorded that he's being successful throughout all of it, but he continues to face these problems because whenever we stir up ministry and we're doing what the Lord has asked us to do, we're going to face a, a, a front that will be brought on by Satan to try and counteract whatever is taking place. So, so you know, listen to what uh, James wrote and listen to what he says when he says to find it all joy as you face those various trials because it's, it's something we should rejoice in if we are being persecuted or facing difficulty because we are obeying or seeking to obey what God has called us to do. But in, in verse 11... We, uh, we find a reference here to something that I want to talk about for just a minute or two. I don't want to get too in-depth on it. But in verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And so we find here that the Holy Spirit is working in such a way with Paul that even some of the things that he touches, the Holy Spirit is still working through and with as these things are brought to others that are facing different sorts of ailments and problems. Um, we find that this is something that, that gets used and brought up periodically in some television ministries. They want to send you prayer cloths. They want to, and I know there are different points of view and different different things that are that can be discussed with regard to that. But I also want to note here that Luke does not say as he writes this, just that Paul is doing miracles. 
He talks about this as being extraordinary miracles. There's something very special about this. There's something very unique about this. And I think it, it falls into some of the same category that we've discussed over the last several weeks about the things that we see in the book of Acts that are taking place for a special purpose for God to achieve. And, and so I, I don't want us to get too bogged down into to talking about this. I know that Jesus healed someone who touched the hem of his garment. I understand that. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, I do want to just kind of open it up for anyone to, to talk about any, any thoughts they have on this, uh, on these couple of verses here and what you think about it. Mary, you look like you might have something to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, um, in track one day, we were talking about when they cast lots for Jesus' clothing, and it just came up the question, like, well, why would they do that? You know, like, I know it's part of prophecy from way back then, but Donna was saying that maybe it had to do with, uh, since people knew that he was something to profit, they could sell that as, like, uh, whoever got... Certain pieces. That's interesting. Yeah. Could sell it, you know, for a profit, not because they believed in Jesus, but because they wanted to make money off of his stuff and his popularity. Because he probably, I, I'm trying to think if there's a reference to what he was wearing. Is there a reference to what? I guess in the purple red. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that would be it, wouldn't it? Yeah. It was also supposed to be in one piece, though. Yeah. And, and purple is very desirable and expensive and a sign of royalty. And um, so, so, so yeah, I guess there's there's definitely some legitimacy to that as a possibility. Huh. Anything else? Because I've had I've had relatives who have sent me sent me prayer cloths and sent me things that um, and and, I, and I'll tell you what I the, the I, I don't I, I don't put. A, Personally, I don't put a whole lot of, 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 I don't put any faith in a piece of cloth that's given to me. I put faith in God. And, and, and if, in, if in my mind, I can say that by them giving this to me, it is a way that it reminds me that they're praying for me. It reminds me that they are asking God to intervene and to help me get better. I'm not going to put any faith in that cloth, but I will put faith in their prayers, and I will put faith in the God that we're praying to. And, and, and so it, it would be easy enough for someone to say, well, thank you, but I don't hold any no I'm not you know I'm not interested um, it's I don't know that we need to start a battle over that you know what I mean and and I've seen folks who will um, and I think it can just go the wrong direction Joy so in my little notes here it took me back to Luke talk about when Peter was kind of doing the same thing before reaching out to touch the objects but it says down here the people came to believe that there was something magical about Peter and that even his shadow would be enough to heal them. There are a number of places in the New Testament, including Acts, where God healed people through surprising means. Besides Peter's shadow, these included the hem of Jesus' robe, as well as face cloths and aprons that the Apostle Paul had touched. There was, of course, nothing special about these items. Rather, it was the power of God working through the messengers with whom the objects were associated. Yeah. 
And I think that's that's what we that's what we need to keep the focus on is this is a representation of the power of God doing extraordinary miracles through through unique means for a purpose at that time. Now, do we fully understand that purpose? Uh, certainly, these miracles would would one they would solidify Paul's power and his authority as an apostle, and two, they would do what all other miracles have done up to this point, and that is open up the door for God to save them. Obviously, miracles do not provide salvation in any way, shape, or form to anyone, but they certainly get your attention, and they certainly let you see the power of God working through, and God uses those miracles to open up people's hearts to hear the gospel in order to come to him. And and so it's another example of how God worked during this time and did what he was trying to do to establish his early church and to to grow his church. We can see how many people touch Jesus' clothes when they bring him out of the it's out of the, the garden and uh, in front of all the tribunals and all that stuff. It didn't seem to do them any. No, it didn't seem to help a bit, did it? <laughs> nope. Good point. Good point. Anything else on that before we move on? Okay, let's go on to uh, verse 13. It says that so the, so the reference there to driving out evil spirits takes us into this discussion of what is essentially winds up being a reverse exorcism. So in verse 13, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And verse 13 says, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and, and Paul I recognize, or basically Paul I've heard of, but, but who are you? And the man who, in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They, this backfired big time. If you're going to proclaim Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form, don't do it by proxy, or even third proxy in this case. Because you, in order, to, in order to proclaim the name of Jesus, they had to mention that this is the one that Paul speaks of. And I'm not even sure how well acquainted they were with Paul, much, much less Jesus. And if this is not evidence of uh, what what James says when he talks about the the, the the demons know Jesus and shudder, but they obviously have no interest in in salvation, uh, this is this is a perfect example of that of the evil spirit talking right to them and saying, "Yeah, I, you know, I know who this Jesus is, and I've heard about Paul. I don't have any idea who you are." And at that point, taking over, and then completely humiliating them by having them to run out of the house beaten, bloodied, and naked. And so there was a lesson to be taught there. And as we find out, the lesson, the, the lesson was what, what God wound up using and turning this into uh, uh, an instance that, that had tremendous impact. Uh, it says in verse 17 that, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell, fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So you got to figure that if this happens in front of people and they see it and they know about it, that this is going to give a tremendous amount of credence to the power of Jesus Christ. 
these, <laughs> these people tried to proclaim him, not knowing him. The demons said, you don't know who he is. We do. And we're going to beat you up. And that story enough should tell you, wait a minute, the, the demons are aware of him. Demons know who he is. And so we find out that through this process and through what took place, in verse 19, it says that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Um, I, I read one account that, and I'm not sure how they really computed this, but one account I read said that if, if you were to take that 50,000 pieces of silver and convert it to today's money, it would be about, about $6 million. And my, my translation says the value of the books was several million. Several million dollars. Yeah. Now, I want to keep in mind that in Ephesus, when we're talking about spells and we're talking about incantations and we're talking about the magic that was practiced there and the arts that were practiced there, they valued the collection of these spells and these things that were written and they would buy these books. So all of these books that they're talking about a value, this is what they could sell them to the public for. People, people were buying these because they valued them and they thought it was a wonderful thing to be able to possess these, all of these things about the dark arts. And so to bring these and to publicly burn them made an incredible statement. And, and they were willing to cast aside the value of them. Jamie? I was going to say, you got to remember this, this was pre-printing press. Oh, absolutely. These were not made overnight. <laughs> No, yeah, that's a that's a, a very good point. That that this is so it's it's so primitive that it, it took a long time for these things to, to come about, uh, even not just not just copying them, but binding them and and preparing them, and there are there scrolls involved here and and what have you. But but certainly there's a tremendous value here, and folks said, you know, um, we we're gonna we're gonna get rid of these and make a statement out of it, and so. Through this process, Jesus was lifted up, and uh, and and Paul's ministry just went that much further. Any uh, comments or questions there? So the Jewish people were the ones who were practicing magic. Well, it's the the, the people in Ephesus, and so. Um, uh, there's there's both Jews and Greeks in Ephesus, and and so I don't know that I can draw a distinction for sure between which ones may have been practicing. Anybody have any insight on that? Probably not the Orthodox Jews. Yeah, probably not the Orthodox Jews. Yeah, probably not. Uh, but but you know. Society has a way of pulling people into things, and so regardless of your background, um, I think it's 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 safe to say that uh, you might have had some of both both ethnicities involved in the act. But um, I don't have any any hardcore on that. My note says the Greco the Greco Roman world believed in magical incantations and spells. Whatever that. Is. Yeah, I think it's a general statement on society. You know. That's where they put their faith. It's, it's kind of funny. It's just when I when I read that, you know, the many who had believed came confessing to, and burned their books, you know. And I just had, when I read it, I was thinking, well, I wonder if they did that out of, like, an act of worship or whatever, or if they were just, like, 
it just scared the living daylights out of them. They're like, because they saw what happened to these other people that tried this, and they're like, I'm not having any part of this anymore. <laughs> well, you know, we, well, but I mean, think about it. There's a reason why we call. Uh, why would we talk about respect and and obedience and loving the Lord that we use the term fear of God? Yeah. There's there's a reason that, that that fear that originally strikes us as fear and develops into loving re- obedience and loving respect. I, I mean, I get the picture of them going, ah, you know, and we got to get rid of this stuff. And and certainly it could have been either one. But to me, it was probably uh, initiated out of out of a true fear of we're we're on the wrong path. We got our our feet on the wrong side of the tracks and it's time to to straighten up. Yeah. I like your grandmother's all about Ouija boards. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how, how, how a lot of people still feel about them. Uh, <laughs> anything else this morning on, on this topic? When I read it, it just seems like these trains show like Orthodox Jews, <laughs> you know, the sons of a high priest, instead of the people that were. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Spells, which would probably be in the, a very different sector of society, I would say. But neither of them, you know, get it right. Yeah. As they start to figure out who the truth, you know, things start burning their attention. Yeah. Yeah, you get the. It's it it's it's a it, it's probably a pretty good uh, pretty good picture of how the Holy Spirit. Can I think it's I'm trying to remember who who I heard say it. It may have been John MacArthur, or or. Uh, no, one John MacArthur. I can't remember who I had to say. He says, if you don't hate the sin you used to love, you need to question whether or not the Spirit is at work in you. You need to question whether or not you've experienced salvation. You should see a difference in your life. You should feel a difference in your life. And and one of the main things that happens at a, at a point of salvation and conversion is our eyes do get opened to activity that, and we may not do it immediately. We may not always hit it, you know, the moment of, of occurrence. But our eyes will begin to be open to the things that we enjoy that are sinful that God does not enjoy, and we'll want to cast them out of our lives. And so, if you can look back over the time of your walk and identify times in your life where where the Holy Spirit revealed to you that the action you were taking or the book you were reading or the movie you were watching or the words you were speaking, you know, you can go down a list. You just shouldn't be doing that. And it caused you to change your life and change the direction you were going in. All of those are those things are proof of salvation and evidence that you can hold on to to say, you know, the Holy Spirit really is at work in my life. This is this is legitimate. This is this is incredible stuff. And and we see that. I think that's a uh, that's a uh, an example of the Holy Spirit just hitting people over the head. You know. Well, next we get into in verse 21 this riot at Ephesus. 
It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself strayed in Asia, stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, or Christianity, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in that trade of ours that may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So we have this silversmith by the name um, of, of Demetrius, and he is working with these other tradesmen who are involved in a similar practice. And one of the things that they would do is they would make these uh, replicas, I guess, uh, to, for people to actually purchase and put in their house that represented the, uh, the, the god, the goddess Artemis. And this was his business. This was how they this was how they made money. It's how they they put food on the table. And, and so, again, we see here, like we have seen similarly, where the gospel comes in, starts to open people's eyes. They start to change their behavior, and it has an impact on not only the society as a whole with how they see things, but it has an economic impact because people start to buy things differently or not buy things, as the case may be. And so... What he does here is he, he tries to instill in these people and, and remind them of the pride that they have of this, this one, this great um, business that they are in and the quality of their workmanship and the things that they do. But he also tries to remind them and instill upon them this national pride or the city pride um, of, of what it is that Ephesus is known for and this wonderful temple that they have of theirs here in Ephesus and how they don't want this to be deposed and don't want this to be struck down. And so when you have people who are worshiping Artemis and you have people who are also making their livelihood off of Artemis, you can appeal to these two areas of pride and stir them up pretty well and, and really get them going. And so that's the direction he's taken. And of course, it's all a selfish endeavor. All of it. It's all a selfish endeavor, uh, just trying to, to, to essentially save his own skin and save his, his, his own income and, uh, and stir something up and get something going. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not unlike what we saw with, uh, with the slave girl who was you know, walking around and, and shouting out things. And, and uh, when, they, when they cast the demon out of the slave girl, suddenly she was no good to them because she couldn't tell the future anymore and, and they weren't going to make their money anymore who, who, were, uh, who were owning her. And so there's, 
there's we see this happen periodically throughout Scripture. Um, but in this case, they're going to do what they can to stir up the pride within the people. And, and I guess I want to pause there for just a second and say, let this be a bit of a warning to us and really to anybody. Christian nationalism is a scary thing. When we start to elevate the United States into some sort of a position that God should be in, nothing wrong with patriotism. I'm, I'm a patriot, and I, I believe in this country, and I love this country, and I'm thankful to be here, and, and, and I'm thankful for all those who have fought and, and, and all of that. But but make no mistake about it, it is, it's God's grace that allows us to experience what we experience. And he deserves all of the glory and all of the credit. And sometimes I fear that that we 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 blend and mix in our pride for our country uh, with our love of God in an unhealthy way. And, and I just think we have to be careful about that because if we elevate country above God, we've got it all wrong. And, and I think that, that this is kind of an example of how you can take pride in your city, pride in your country, pride in what you, and, and use it in an unhealthy way and, and go down the wrong path. And that's what we start to see happening here. What's that? I'll say amen to that. Yeah, we do. We do. So in verse 28, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of <clears throat> the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is a mob mentality. Um, I, I read it, I read, um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said that um, uh, an angry mob has a lot of heads, but very few brains. And it's a very, very good statement because here we've got all these people and, and you know, they're just following the crowd. Let's go. Everybody else is going. Let's go, too. So they're, they're telling Paul not to come in. Uh, some cried out one thing or another for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. In verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we have this, this chaos that's taking place inside the theater. Now, the theater's a pretty big place. And you've got a lot of people in here. And now, th this is a time when can you imagine thousands of people who perhaps could be upset, mob mentality, and they're all chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're all trying to, to edify this false god. And it all started because a silversmith decided to stir up trouble to save his business. And this is a picture of a mob that's angry. 
And we're going to stop there this morning and pick this up next week and read about what takes place and um, how this gets handled, how this gets dealt with, and what comes of it. And we'll discuss it some more. I'm going to go ahead and, and, uh, and close for the day. Uh, but there's a lot, of, a lot of activity going on here. And chances are they were right to keep Paul out of this one. Um, but if, if they hadn't held him back, I bet Paul would have been right in front of them all. Um, any comments, questions before we close? All right. Well, thanks for being here again. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 35 next week and see where it takes us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we are so grateful that uh, we have the opportunity to come here this morning to read it, to study it, to discuss it. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for uh, uh, all of the things that we, we see here and the way that you worked so wonderfully to establish your church in the early days of the apostles. And um, Lord, we just we just pray that we will continue to see and feel and to seek you. Lord, help us to reach out to those who are lost. Uh, help us to, to witness to our friends and our families. And Lord, this morning, uh, as the message is delivered, we just hope and pray that, that you'll soften the hearts of those who are here. Uh, Lord, we want to see your kingdom grow, and we pray that you'll uh, work wonderfully uh, in the combination of the message and those who are here. And um, Lord, allow existing relationships to be strengthens, strengthened and new ones to form. Thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.